All right, welcome back to our Bible Bee study for this year in the book of Ruth. We're covering one chapter per study. We covered chapter one and an introduction to the book in our study last week. For today, we're going to cover all of chapter two. Uh, Let me go ahead and read through the chapter like I did last time. And then uh, for those who are taking notes, if you want to plan ahead, we're going to break this chapter into three smaller sections. The first seven verses we'll call Ruth Gleans the Field of Boaz. Then we'll um, tackle verses 8 through 17, and we'll call that Boaz Meets Ruth. And then one final smaller section, verses 18 through 23, Ruth returns to Naomi. All right, listen as I read from God's Word in chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, 
Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, let's tackle then the first section, verses 1 through 7, which we're calling Ruth Gleans the Field of Boaz. All right, so remember in, a, in our study where we left off at the end of chapter 1, Ruth has followed Naomi back to Israel and back to the region of Judah, back to the small town of Bethlehem, just immediately south of the greater city of Jerusalem. This is where Ruth, I mean, excuse me, Naomi had originally come from. It's where her husband, who's now died, had come from. So she's returned home. But remember, Naomi's husband has died. Her two sons have died. And so she really has no family in in terms of what we would call immediate family there in the city of Bethlehem. And they've come from a land, the land of Moab, which uh, hasn't been uh, all that prosperous and all that fruitful. And in their journey uh, back to uh, Bethlehem, back to the land where Naomi came from, they wouldn't have been able to carry much with them because remember they are... They are walking all that long 75-mile journey back to Bethlehem. So they've arrived in Bethlehem. They're, they're, they're settling in in Bethlehem. But there's a need for them to find some food to eat just literally so that they can survive. And of course, in those days, life was quite a bit different than it is today. They couldn't have just gotten in the car and driven over to Ralph's and bought some groceries and brought it home to eat. Um, they are in a circumstance of real need, and there's, there's really no income for them. There's no job for them. There's no provision for them. And so um, what happens here in chapter 2 in a simple overview is we're going to see how the Lord is going to provide for both Naomi and for Ruth in this circumstance of their great need. The chapter opens in an unusual way in that in verse 1, we're introduced to one of the three main characters of the book. And he's not even in the scene yet. He hasn't even shown up yet, but we're introduced to Boaz. And it's, it's just a, a way that the writer shows us where the story is heading and also how important Boaz is in terms of the role he's going to play in the story a little bit deeper into the book. We're told that Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Now, the word relative here doesn't mean, in terms of the specific word that's used, it doesn't mean that he was a close family member that was directly connected to Naomi. It's a word in our translation, the ESV, it's translated relative, but it literally means a friend or an acquaintance. And so what we're told when Boaz is introduced, he's a friend 
or an acquaintance, not so much of Naomi, though I'm sure Boaz knew who Naomi was and Naomi knew who Boaz was, but Boaz was connected to her husband, Elimelech, who had died. Remember, they lived for a while in Bethlehem before they moved to Moab. And so, even though it's been a a long time since she's been in Bethlehem, do you remember how long they had spent in Moab? Uh, They were 10 years in Moab. So, uh, Boaz has not seen anyone in this family for 10 years time but he is introduced as someone before they left who was a friend or an acquaintance of her husband Elimelech. Now the other thing that's mentioned here um, that we should pay attention to is simply the name of Boaz. I, I talked last week about how Bible names have meaning and they have significance much more so than in our culture today and the the name Boaz means In him is strength. It refers to a certain kind of strength that that this person is representing uh, in the way that they were named. Uh, We don't know yet what kind of strength is represented in Boaz's life. Uh, It could be physical strength. He could be stronger than the average man. Uh, in terms of just muscular strength, or it could be some other kind of strength. For instance, uh, inner strength, strength that what we call strength of character, meaning he's a, a particularly good man. And certainly in the way that the story unfolds, you don't see Boaz doing any feats of physical strength, but you do see him showing strong character outside of normal uh, uh, anticipation or consideration. And so I think that's, um, that's an important note for us to, uh, to pay attention to. The other thing that's mentioned here is that he was, he's described in verse 1 as a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Now this is where we find out that Boaz actually is related to Naomi, but not directly to Naomi. He was related by blood to Naomi's husband, who was Elimelech, and of course now Elimelech has already died. Uh, he is part of the clan of Elimelech. So in those days, and we still have similar kind of uh, things going on in our culture today, you have your what we call your immediate family. So for for instance, the Boulware family that lives in this house is the immediate Boulware family. But outside the immediate family, there are other people elsewhere in the world that are named Boulware that descended from the same common ancestor. And so the clan is that larger, what we would call extended family. For instance, um, here in this town, I only have one person that's alive that's directly related to me by blood. But if I were to travel to Louisiana where my father came from, I have literally dozens upon dozens of aunts and uncles and cousins, first cousins, second cousins, third cousins. I have, I have so many, I don't, I've never even met them all. I don't even know them all. And so they would be my extended family, my clan, and the people that are directly, most closely blood-related would be my family. So what we're told is that Boaz and Elimelech were distant 
relations, but still connected by this, what we would call extended family connection. The other detail is he is described here as a worthy man. Now, this is not a bad translation. It's just not the only way we can understand how he's being introduced to us. We're meant to understand something about Boaz before we even meet him in the story so that we when we see him acting in the way that he does later in this chapter and later in the book, we have better understanding about why he's acting that way. So the word worthy can be translated two or three different ways. And we just have to draw our own conclusions about what the writer meant for us to understand about Boaz. One, it could refer to his financial situation and it could describe a greatly wealthy man, meaning someone that had a lot of money and who uh, was in a position of great influence in the small town of Bethlehem because of that. Is that true about Boaz? It's absolutely true as we're going to find uh, later in the story. Boaz has been blessed by the Lord and he has a lot of financial resources at his disposal, more than average in the city or the town of Bethlehem. But this word worthy could also refer to a man of great character or great virtue. It can refer to a greatness of who he is inside, the kind of man that he actually is. And in this chapter ahead of us, and later in the story in chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see a great character on display in the choices and the actions of Boaz. He is a truly godly man and a man of great virtue, a man of great character. So um, which of these two applies to Boaz? Actually, both of them do. So whichever way the writer meant for us to understand who Boaz was, uh, this this is an appropriate double description of Boaz. He was truly a wealthy man, blessed in his external circumstances, but he was truly a godly man, a virtuous man, a man of high character, blessed in his heart by the Lord, not just in his external circumstances. Now, at this point, we're told that Ruth approaches Naomi. They Remember, they've arrived back in Bethlehem, but they're hungry and they need something to eat. And so Ruth approaches Naomi and makes her request of Naomi. She asks her, to let her go glean from fields there outside of Bethlehem. This was, remember, at the end of chapter 1, they had arrived back, and we noticed that this was the Lord's hand in their journey. They had arrived back in Bethlehem at a specific time of the year, which was the time of the barley harvest. So they had arrived with perfect timing where the Lord was going to provide for their practical needs, And he's also going to, of course, provide for the rest of their lives in the circumstances that unfold from there. So Ruth asks Naomi, let me go glean in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Now, there are several principles that are revealed in this brief conversation that happens between Ruth and Naomi. And I don't want us to miss these principles. Each one of them is important in their own way. Number one. As I've mentioned, Ruth and Naomi are poor and they're in need of a source of food. God had, before this day ever began, God had taken concern and had made provision 
for people in the boundaries of the nation of Israel, the, the promised land where he had settled his people, he had made provision for poor people that were needy. And that provision was addressed in a specific law, in the law of God and the law of Moses, that was known as the law of gleaning. Now, gleaning just simply meant that poor people who did not own a farm, that were not growing crops themselves because they didn't have the money to own that kind of land and those kind of crops, they were allowed to come to a farm and not just go right in the middle of the farm and take anything and everything they wanted, but the, the, the portion of the crop that fell on the very edges of the field. These poor people were allowed to go and gather what had fallen to the ground at the very edges of the field so that they would have something to eat. It was a very gracious and generous provision that God commanded all of the inhabitants of Israel to honor and to follow. Now I'm going to, we won't have time to go and read them, but I'm going to give you three passages from the law of God, the law of Moses, that address this gleaning law. So it's mentioned more than once in the law of God. Uh, The first two passages are in the book of Leviticus, and then the third one is in the book of Deuteronomy. So you want to get in your notes Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, and then Leviticus 23, 22, and then finally Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. Now, if we did take the time to go and read those three passages, we would find that the Lord was showing concern in his commandments to Israel to make provision for the allowance of gleaning for three groups of people. Three groups. And these three groups are perfectly represented by Naomi and Ruth in this story. The first group was people who were poor, meaning literally they just didn't have enough money to own their own field. And so they were super needy in their their life circumstances. Second, God made special provision for gleaning for those who were widows in Israel. Remember, uh, Naomi's husband has died. And her sons, who would normally take up the care and provision for her have also died. She has no source of income, no source of food. The Lord made provision for widows who were in that kind of circumstance to allow them to go and glean the fields. And then the third category applied more directly to Ruth, not to Naomi. That is, God also commanded that sojourners in Israel would be allowed to glean the fields. Now, a sojourner was someone that came from another nation. And they either were passing through Israel on the way to somewhere else. And so the Lord wanted those sojourners to be allowed to take some of the grain that fell to the ground on the edges of the fields of Israel to show the Lord's generosity, even to foreigners in the midst of his holy nation of his people. But it also included people that had moved from other nations in order to live in the boundaries of Israel, and that was certainly the case for Ruth here. So God was providing in the gleaning laws for poor people, for widows, and for sojourners, and all three of them apply to Naomi and to Ruth. Now, what we need to understand 
in terms of our culture today, our society today, that's different in God's provision for the poor and the needy is how gleaning actually worked compared to how poor and needy are cared for in our society today. If someone is what we call destitute, meaning they have no ability to provide for themselves and they're truly needy, our government in the United States of America actually has laws in place and a provision that we call welfare. Now, welfare is simply the person who is needy doesn't need to do anything other than go to a certain location and fill out certain forms. And if they do, there will be money provided to them or like food stamps, that kind of thing that will be provided for them. And the government will literally care for them without doing anything other than filling out forms. So the question here in terms of what Ruth is doing, how many forms did Ruth fill out before she went to work in the field of Boaz this day in chapter 2? The answer is she didn't fill out any forms because the Lord did not provide welfare for needy people in the ancient culture of Israel. What he provided was a way for them to be allowed to work for their own food and for their own provision, but everyone was required to work unless they literally were physically unable to, and then someone connected to them would need to work for them. So gleaning was a special generous provision, but the person that gleaned had to literally go to the field and work during the day, and we're going to see Ruth gleaning this day. And by the way, chapter two is the story of a single day in Ruth's life. But she worked, if you read the chapter as a full story of one whole day, she worked from dawn that day, right after sunup, to sundown that evening. Now, generally speaking, how long, how many hours does it take to go from dawn, sundown, or excuse me, sunup to to, uh, evening where it's sundown? How many hours of a day are we talking about? About 12 hours. And now there's a break we're going to see in the middle of the day where she and the other workers stop and actually have a, a, what we would call lunch, a noonday break and a noonday meal. But other than that break for lunch, we're going to see Ruth working approximately 12 hours that day. So there is generosity and there is graciousness and there's mercy in the gleaning provision But there's still hard work on the part of the person that's actually doing the gleaning, which is Ruth in this case. Now, um, Ruth was willing to work. She was willing to go and glean. She was ready to do it. And she knew they didn't have any food wherever they were staying. They didn't have any food in the house. She needed to go out and actually acquire some food. And Naomi is older by this time. Remember, she wasn't as capable of doing hard work. So that explains to us, without the story mentioning it to us, why why didn't Naomi go with Ruth that day and share the workload of gleaning? Because Naomi is an older woman and she's not as physically capable of sustaining a 12-hour day of how many, let me ask it this way. How many of you have ever worked outside in the sun for 12 hours on any given day of your life? How many besides Mr. Bower and me? Okay, it's not easy work. I've worked in some situations in my younger life 
20 hours in a single day. Sun, all through all the days of sunlight and on into no sunlight. Uh, it's not easy to work outside like that. And she was not going to do easy work, but we see a willingness and a readiness on Ruth's part to embrace that hard work in order to provide for not only herself, she's not thinking selfishly here, she's wanting to provide for her own need, but she's even more concerned to provide for the need of Naomi, who has no way of providing for herself. Now, what's interesting here, though, is that, and again, we're still just in verse 2, what does Ruth say to to Naomi, and how does she say it? She says, and these are, in our translation, the ESV that I'm, I'm teaching from, three small words, but they show us something about Ruth's character, and they show us a difference between her culture and ours today. The words are these, these three small words, let me go. Now, who is she speaking to? Who is Ruth saying those three words to? She's speaking to Naomi, And she says, let me go and glean today. When you ask a question like that, and it is a question, let me go. It's really a request that's being made. It's showing that Ruth had a good idea. It was a really good idea. Someone between her and Naomi needs to get up, leave the house, go out in the fields and glean and bring some some food back to the table that night. But You notice this about Ruth. She doesn't just get up and tell Naomi, hey, Naomi, we need some food on the table. I'm going to go glean today. You wait here. In other words, Ruth does not take charge of the situation. She recognizes a need. She shows great willingness to go out and work hard. But she appeals to Naomi and asks permission from Naomi to allow her to go glean. It shows that she has a submissive spirit about her. In our culture today, most young women are taught to be strong and what we call in our culture independent. That means you don't need to talk to anyone or ask anyone any permission for anything in your life. You just do what you want to do because you're a young woman and you should be able to do whatever you want to do. That's not the kind of woman that Ruth was. She recognized that that there were relationships of authority that the Lord has established for our benefit and for our protection. And she is acknowledging Naomi as at the very least being a trusted counselor to her. And she doesn't want to just head out of the house on her own just because she had a good idea. And again, it was a good idea. But she doesn't act on it until she runs it first by Naomi and receives Naomi's agreement and permission to go and go gleaning that day. Now, Naomi knows what their need is. And she knows that Ruth is a good woman. And so Naomi uh, gives her that permission to go. But let me link this this short exchange with a New Testament passage for your consideration. You can look this up in your own time. I'll just briefly describe it. This little exchange in verse 2 between Ruth and Naomi is really at the heart of a passage in the New Testament in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. That passage in the New Testament 
is Paul teaching a young pastor by the name of Titus what he should in turn teach all of the members of his church that he was responsible for. And he's teaching him that older women should have a certain kind of relationship with younger women in terms of older women of faith to younger women of faith. And that older to younger relationship should be one where the older kind of take the younger under their wings and train them in the right ways of godly life. And so what's happening here is that relationship has already been formed between Naomi and Ruth, and Ruth is honoring that relationship in her request of Naomi, and Naomi is honoring it in giving her exactly that permission. And as she gives her the the answer, yes, go ahead and go glean, we see just in the way she addresses uh, Ruth, we see some of the depth of the relationship because Naomi refers to her not by her first name, but she calls her my daughter. Now, they were technically mother and daughter by covenant, by marriage. Remember, Ruth was not born from Naomi. Ruth was connected to Naomi because Ruth had married one of the two sons of Naomi. But that man has died, and that could have severed their mother-daughter kind of relationship because she's technically a daughter-in-law, but her husband is now gone. But Naomi has embraced Ruth as a true daughter, and Ruth has embraced Naomi as a true mother in their connection. Now, Ruth is about to head out now to go glean in the field, but what we see is that she has a certain expectation of what's going to happen that day. And I think this is a hint for us to notice that Ruth really is a man, or excuse me, a woman of faith. Uh, let me read the last part of verse 2. This is uh, Ruth speaking. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now that's kind of an unusual wording of what she's describing there, but let me describe it to you. She does not know she's going to be going to Boaz's field. Ruth does not have any particular man in mind. She just believes that if she goes out and starts gleaning, someone's going to be the owner of that field. And when she starts gleaning, she is convinced and expects that that owner will look favorably on her and allow her, grant her permission to glean. And so the idea here is, I think it's a hint that that Ruth is a woman of faith. She has a trust and confidence. We're going to see that trust and confidence in the Lord being becoming more fully developed later in the story. Now, um, at this point, Ruth goes out to glean. She leaves Naomi behind, and she's going out for a day's work. As I said, she didn't plan to go to the field of Boaz. She just out, went out and started gleaning in one of the fields of Israel. And what ends up happening, though, is that she, as the the passage tells us, she happened to come to the field of Boaz. Now this word happened, as it's translated from the Hebrew, has a sense of she just accidentally, or we could say coincidentally, came to the field of this particular man who's going to become one of the three main characters in the book, in the story. And ultimately, I, I, how many of you have already read through the entire book of Ruth? So you've read to the very end. I'm not spoiling any information for you. 
Ruth is going to end up marrying this man, Boaz. They're going, to, they're going to spend the rest of their lives together. They're going to have a blessed family by the Lord together. But at this point, she has no knowledge of that. She has no understanding of that. She doesn't know who Boaz is. She doesn't know which field belongs to which man of Israel. She just goes out and starts gleaning a field, and it just happens to be Boaz's field. Now, the writer writes it that way because a lot of our Bible stories are written from our perspective for our benefit, meaning they're written as if someone was telling this story to us and we're hearing it for the first time and we're looking at it from a from a human to human perspective of just this is the way things happened and isn't that interesting that she happened to come to this particular field but it's there's a hint in here and the hint is it's not an accident that she happened to go to the field of Boaz of all of the fields of all of the landowners that lived in the city of Bethlehem and in the surrounding area, we don't know how many landowners there were. We don't know how many different owners of fields there were and which ones she might have gone to. All we need to know is, out of all the ones available, she came to exactly the right one. Just like at the end of chapter 1, they came back to Bethlehem at exactly the right moment in time. And we're going to see in just a moment, Boaz is going to arrive at the field at exactly the right moment later that day. So what we see here are hints of the Lord's hand in all of these circumstances that are unfolding. So Ruth went out, she left the house, she left Naomi, and her steps took her to a very specific location. She didn't realize it. But the Lord was literally guiding her steps as she went to that specific field. So we call this principle in theology God's providence. It's different than coincidence or accident. God's providence means that God is at work in the circumstances that his people experience, but his hand is not visible. Meaning, if I'm walking in a specific direction and the Lord is guiding me, I don't see his hand. I mean, think of it this way. If this bottle were me, what is being pictured is the Lord is putting his hand right on my head and turning me so that I end up exactly where he wants me to be. But I don't necessarily feel his hand on my head. As he's guiding me in providence, I'm not even aware of his guidance at the moment that I'm being guided. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have his hand on me, and it doesn't mean he's not directing my steps. So that's exactly what Ruth is experiencing. She's experiencing the unseen, at this moment, unknown hand of the Lord. Now, I'm confident of this. Years from now, in the future, both Boaz and Ruth, as they were remembering these early events of how they met and how they came together, I am sure that they had many times of praise and worship that they shared as they remembered how the Lord brought them together that day. But at the time that it's happening, they're not aware of it in that sense until later. 
All right. So this is the Lord's providence at work. Now, at this point, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem, meaning he lives in the city of Bethlehem, the small town of Bethlehem, and apparently his field, like all the other fields of all the other farmers, was somewhere outside of the city. So Boaz has left his house. He's gone out to his field that he owns. It's time of harvest. Why is Boaz going out there? Most likely just to check on how the harvest is going. The harvest was the most important time of the year for farmers and for those who owned land because this was the source of his income and his wealth. And so he wanted to go check on how things were going. He wasn't doing all of the harvesting himself. We're going to see that Boaz had hired workers that worked for him. They're called reapers in the story. And he had one young man that he trusted, apparently a young man of high character, who was appointed to be the supervisor or the foreman. He was in charge of the other workers, the reapers. And so Boaz is going out to interact with that supervisor, that foreman, and to check on the harvest that day. When Boaz arrives, he has a brief interaction with the men that are working for him out in the field. And there's something revealed in this brief interaction. Boaz greets them. How does he greet them? He doesn't say, hey guys, how's it going? And then he goes about his business. And they they answer back and they, they say, oh, pretty good. How's it going with you? That's not the exchange that they have. How you greet someone is oftentimes reflective of what's going on in your heart toward the people that you're greeting. And this is certainly the case here. Boaz gives them what we would call a spiritual greeting. And he's not being, uh, let me use a term, he's not being hyper-spiritual. Sometimes when you're interacting with other believers, um, the only thing they can ever talk about are spiritual things, and you, you might feel like they're, they're a little bit over the top. Boaz is not being over the top. He's not going too far. But the way that he greets his workers is reflective of the kind of man that he is in two important ways. Boaz is, number one, a godly man, truly godly man. He's a man who honors the Lord. And so he greets his workers with this, the Lord be with you. So what Boaz is essentially showing here is that this is the most important time of the year. The harvest is a blessing for his finances, but he knows the true source of his blessing, the true source of his finances. Remember, it was not that many years ago in Bethlehem where there was a great famine in the land, and that's why Elimelech had taken his wife and family and moved to Moab. So Boaz knows, hey, this is a blessing to have this harvest, and I remember and know where that blessing comes from. And so Boaz is not caught up in the harvest thinking only about the money that's coming into his bank account. He's thinking about the Lord and the Lord's blessing. And interestingly, he's also aware that while his workers don't own the field and his workers don't own the grain that they're reaping, his workers are the Lord's provided way for that field to be harvested. He honors 
not just the Lord, but he shows honor to the men who are working for him. Now, some of you will have this experience later in your life. Most of you here are too young to have ever had a job where you're working with someone who is a supervisor, who's in charge of you, or maybe the owner of a company that you'll go to work with later. Um, You'll be in a situation and that owner of the company will walk in and you're working for that person and he's probably not going to greet you like Boaz did this day. Most likely, the most likely thing is he'll probably just ignore you because you just don't matter to him because he's more wealthy than you are. He's, he's living large and in charge and he could care less about you other than how you contribute to his bank account, but he doesn't really give you any credit for that. That's pretty typical in a, in a big uh, owner interaction with an employee. But that's not what Boaz does. He not only honors the Lord, he respects and honors the men that are working hard for him and helping him and increasing the blessing in his life by way of just pronouncing a blessing from the Lord upon these, these workers. The Lord be with you. It's not just a casual greeting. He is actually proclaiming or pronouncing a spiritual blessing on them as they're working for his benefit. In other words, he treated his workers with respect. True spiritual respect. And it also tells us something about Boaz being a man of wisdom. Why? Because it reflects not just on his character in terms of of what he said to them. The men that he hired respond back to him. And how, how do they respond? They don't say, he says to them, the Lord be with you. And they don't respond, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're working. How do they respond back to him? The Lord bless you. They are grateful. Remember, they've come out of a time of famine also. They're grateful to have a job. They're grateful to be harvesting food. They know because of this day's work, there's going to be food on their family's table that night, which not too long ago, that table in their family household was empty. And everyone went to bed hungry that night. This night, their families are going to go to bed full and satisfied. And they recognize that, yes, the Lord has provided that, but also Boaz has a place, a part in that, because he's provided a job for them, and he's provided food because of that job for their tables. And so they respond, the Lord bless you, which tells me that Boaz had shown wisdom in who he hired to be workers for him. He hired godly men to work for him and they respond in kind to his spiritual blessing this is a believer hiring other believers and they have a good and healthy godly interaction before the rest of the work day unfolds now at this point Boaz seeks out the foreman and of course he would normally seek out the foreman in order to interact with him and to find out how's the harvest going today. But he has something else on his mind besides just the harvest. Apparently, at this point in the story, Boaz has already noticed that there is a young woman gleaning in the field that he's never seen before and he's never met before. And because he's the owner of the field, and he is in charge, and he is in authority, and it belongs to him, he could have marched directly over to Ruth. And said, hey, who are you? And what are you doing in my field? But he doesn't do that. Boaz again shows wisdom here. 
and he shows an awareness of what's appropriate and what's proper. And so he goes to the foreman, who is obviously must have had some interaction with this young woman, or she wouldn't be working in his field. And he asks the, the young foreman, who, who is this young woman? Who does she belong to? Now, what he means by that is that in that culture, everyone belonged to someone. And a, and a young woman would not just be a single, isolated young woman. She's either, she belongs to a father somewhere in town, or she belongs to a husband somewhere in town, or she doesn't belong to a father or husband. Who is she connected to? And of course, in this case, the only connection that Ruth has to Israel at all is her relationship to Naomi. So Boaz asks the supervisor about her in that way and shows, as I said, both wisdom and discretion in his interest to find out who she is. And the, and the supervisor identifies Ruth as the Moabite woman, the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from Moab. Now later in, in uh, Boaz's interaction, later in this chapter, we're going to find out that he already knows about the story of Naomi and Ruth. He just didn't know that this young woman was Ruth. But now he knows her name, he knows her identity, he knows her connection to Naomi, and he has already heard the story of their return to Bethlehem. And so he knows more about her than Ruth suspects that he knows about her. Now, the supervisor mentions that Ruth had come early that morning to the field. And what's interesting is that she had apparently made a very bold request. So you see, Ruth is in her relationship with Naomi, she's submissive. She has a, a right understanding of what's, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But she also has a bold character. And she's willing to show courage when courage is necessary. She apparently came to that field and were assuming she came with the right attitude. But what she asked the supervisor was very strong. It was a strong request. She asked to be allowed to glean among the sheaves with, um, after the reapers had gone through the field. Now, the way it worked, I'll just give a, a short description. Uh, how many of you have ever seen a field of grain? like the stalks that grow grain. It looks like very, very, very tall grass. It could be this tall. And what the reapers do, they come in with these, uh, these curved knives and they, they cut the stalks and then they bundle them and leave them on the ground. They'll come back later because they're going to take them to a threshing floor and beat those stalks with a, a rod of wood in order to separate the grain that they can use from the stalks that are only useful to be burned in the fire. And so she's asking, not just allow me as a normal gleaner to go around the edges of the field and just pick up the grain that's fallen to the ground, just a few measly grains of barley. She's asking boldly for permission to go right into the middle of the field and follow the reapers as they go around because as they're gathering these bundles, there are more grains falling to the ground right near where the bundles are. And she's, she's really asking for permission. Let me get more than the average gleaner would be allowed to get in this situation because the, the normal gleaners were not allowed to enter into the middle of the field. And that's what she's asking permission for. Now, 
Um, apparently, what and, and this we have to just read into the story in the way that it's told to us. Apparently, the foreman granted her permission to begin to glean in the midst of the field, but she wasn't allowed to take any of the grain out of the field yet. Most likely, she was at, she was allowed to to glean and to gather but not to take any of the grain away. So most likely what's happening is that the foreman is waiting for Boaz to arrive. He wants to get Boaz's permission, his authorization. This is what she asked. This is what I've allowed her to do so far today before you arrive. But it's up to you whether you're going to allow her to actually take that grain out of the field and take it home like she wants to take it home. Now, um, what we do know, though, is that she had been working from early that morning until the time that, um, that Boaz has, has arrived. Now, there's a brief description here right uh, near the end of this section, and, and that is that he testifies that she had been working from early that morning with only a short rest. Now, this uh, phrase, a short rest, is an interesting translation, and there's different ways of understanding what the writer is actually saying. So in the King James Version, it was, it was written this way. She worked from early that morning, and she only tarried a little in the house. Meaning, the picture there, if that's accurate, would be she was working all morning long before Boaz came and before the conversation with the foreman, But then she stopped the work at some point in the day and she went into the house to rest. Now, the question is, where is this house that's being addressed if the King James Version is correct in this particular case? Um, Of course, there's the house back in the city of Bethlehem, which would indicate maybe she left the field for a short time, walked all the way back to Bethlehem, took a nap at Bethlehem's house, and then came back out to the field before Boaz even got there. But that's most likely not what's being described. The other possibility is maybe there was some kind of house right next to the field. Like maybe a supervisor lived in the house there next to the field. But that was not normally the case for any of the fields of Bethlehem. There was no house right there. So the question is, what do you mean she rested in the house for a while? Well, in the way that this is translated, it's kind of an awkward translation, but let me give you an alternative in terms of what most commentators think that this is actually describing. When Boaz is asking, what's going on, what's the story with this young woman? Uh, The supervisor, the foreman, basically tells Boaz, she came early today, She she made a bold request to be allowed to get into the middle of the field and follow the reapers around and glean the grain from the field. And she's pretty much made this field her home today. It's not indicating, and and in the original Hebrew, there's no hint at all in the wording that she ever took any rest that morning. She didn't stop working from the moment she arrived in the field until the moment that Boaz arrived. What the foreman is essentially saying about her is that she, ha- she hasn't left the field. She's been working right alongside the hardest workers in your field. And this would be somewhat unusual for a gleaner. A gleaner would typically come gather the few grains from the edge of the field that they could gather and they would immediately leave to go make some food because they're starving and they're super hungry. 
This young, young woman has been working straight through for morning and we're nearly at noon to the noon break here when Boaz arrives. So um, what we see here is that in this circumstance then um, Boaz wants to now have some direct interaction with Ruth. He's found out from uh, the young supervisor who she is and what her story is. So we're in section 2 now, verses 8 through 17. Boaz meets Ruth. So Boaz goes to address her directly, and he addresses her in a very appropriate way. And it's appropriate now for him to talk to her directly because he has been asked permission from her And he's the one to give her the permission, so he goes to do that. When he talks to her, he uses an interesting phrase because it's the same phrase that Naomi had used to describe her relationship with Ruth. He calls Ruth, Boaz calls Ruth, my daughter. Now, is this some kind of weird description that Boaz uses in relationship to Ruth. Is she technically really actually his daughter? The answer is no. But this was two things going on. One, he's acknowledging the difference in their ages. We're going to find out later in the book that Boaz, we don't know how old he is, but he's somewhat older than Ruth. She is a young woman. He's apparently not a young man any longer. And so there's an age difference. And by referring to her as my daughter, that's an appropriate way to acknowledge their age difference. And then two, by calling her my daughter, he is granting her what we would call covenant status in Israel. One of the common phrases to describe all of the young women of Israel in Scripture is they are referred to as the daughters of Israel. And so by calling her my daughter, he's saying, I acknowledge and recognize, even though you are a foreigner, even though you have come from Moabite, I recognize you have covenant standing with the Lord and with the people of God. Now, why would he recognize her as having covenant standing? Because she had been married to a man of Israel. She was folded into God's covenant by her marriage relationship with the son of Naomi. And he recognizes it because he's heard that whole story, remember? Now, at this point, Ruth, uh, uh, Boaz is going to make special provision for Ruth. And so he directs her to glean his field. This is him granting her the permission that she had asked the foreman for early that day. In in other words, he's not just saying, it's okay for you to keep working, but it's okay for you to take home the grain that you have gleaned that day. He's the owner. He gives her that permission. But then he tells her, limit your work to my field only. Now, this isn't because Boaz is being possessive toward Ruth. This is because he's being generous toward Ruth. He's not assuming that he only needs to provide part of what Ruth and Naomi need. He is willing to provide for their entire need and not say, okay, look, you've gleaned all morning in my field. Don't take too much. Go on to the, my neighbors and glean from his field in the afternoon. Don't, don't, don't take so much of my stuff. He is generously and graciously saying, only glean in my field, meaning I am planning to make full provision for your need and for Naomi's need in terms of the food that you, uh, you need to receive from the gleaning.
Now, um, he also says to her, keep close to my young women. And in this, Boaz, once again, we're going to see this many times throughout the book, Boaz again shows wisdom here, and he shows great consideration for Ruth in her circumstance. Um, There were two groups that were working the field, and this was common in Israel. There would be a group of young men, and they're doing the hardest work, the most physically taxing work. They're going into that field with those knives, and they're cutting the stalks of of, uh, grain, and then they're bundling it up, and they're laying it on the ground. In In terms of the bundles, the women would follow the reapers, and then they would tie the bundles together, and they would stack them in one location. So that as the grain was moved from where it grew to the threshing floor, which was in another location, that uh, each group, the men and the women, had their own assignment and their own jobs. So here, essentially what Boaz is doing is he's saying to Ruth, stay out of the way of the reapers, the young men, let them do their job, but stick with the group of young women that are following the reapers, and you'll be involved in tying the bundles together and stacking them up. Now, by assigning her that work, he knew that she would then have access to gather all of the grain that fell to the ground that was not part of the bundles. She would have a a greater um, provision in the gleaning process than the normal gleaners would have. He also said to the young men, and he made her aware that he had said this to the young men, that he had charged the young women, uh, excuse me, the young men not to touch her. This was showing his consideration in protecting her. So uh, the young men I've already mentioned were probably men of character because of the way they had greeted Boaz. But you never know. There might be one or two young men in that group that were not as godly as the others. And young men will be like young men at times. And they will not always be appropriate in their interest in young women. And so Boaz is aware that one of his young workers might have the wrong kind of interest in Ruth. And so he's, he's taking thought about that before the worst case scenario could even happen. And so he went to the young men apart from Ruth and he said, listen, guys, this young woman is going to be working in my field and I don't want any of you messing with her. I don't want any of you touching her. I don't want any of you bothering her. Leave her alone and let her do her job. You focus on your job. And by charging them in that way, essentially he's making it known that if you don't pay attention to what I'm saying, you're going to lose your job and you're going to be out of here. And I'm going to hold you accountable. But he tells this to Ruth to comfort her heart and to make her feel safe and secure in this environment. Then on top of that, he even tells Ruth, look, I've also instructed the young men that when they, uh, when they draw water from the well in order to drink, because if you're working outside in the hot sun all day long, you're going to need to drink or else you're going to get sick. And um, so he instructed the young, women, the young men to um, also allow her access to the water that they had drawn from the well. Because it's not like, uh, like uh, wh- whose uh, blue uh, thermos is that there? Uh, hold that up so for everyone to see. Uh, Ruth didn't 
carry something like this out into the field with her that day. We have uh, thermoses that we carry water around with us, and, and that's a great thing to have, and it's a great thing to make use of. But she went out in the field working hard, and she doesn't have any water to drink unless she has access to the well. But the, here's the problem. The well doesn't belong to her. She doesn't have right to go and draw water from that well unless someone provides water for her. And so it just shows just how considerate uh, Boaz is toward Ruth. He's thinking of all of her practical needs in this circumstance. Now, Ruth is actually kind of shocked at this point in the story by how kind and how considerate and how gracious and how generous um, Boaz has been toward her. And it has affected her deeply, so much so that she does something really unusual, something that you may have never done at any time in your life. And if you haven't, it's not wrong that you haven't. It's just, just be aware of what's going on and in the depths of Ruth's heart to lead her to respond in this way. What does she do? She falls, it says, on her face. Now, it's important to make sure you don't misunderstand uh, have you ever heard the term heat stroke? That's a term we use to describe someone that's been out in the hot sun working hard and they've been out there too long and they haven't been drinking enough fluid. They haven't been getting into the shade periodically and resting. So you can work so hard and you can, you can sweat, perspire so much fluid out of your body that if you don't take in fluid and if you don't rest periodically, what can happen is you can literally faint. And if you faint, someone could literally just topple over under their face. I've seen people just literally just be overwhelmed and they just, it's just, they lose consciousness and just fall to the ground. That's not what Ruth is doing here. She falls to her face, which means what happened first was she fell to her knees and it was purposeful. She didn't lose her balance and fall to her knees. She dropped to her knees because she was emotionally overwhelmed by the graciousness of Boaz. And once she got to her knees, she went further and she bowed her forehead until it touched the ground from her knees. And that was a symbol in the ancient culture of someone that was recognizing how much greater the person they were bowing to was in relationship to themselves or in comparison to themselves. It's an expression of ultimate humility. In other words, it would be appropriate for a believer to do that to the Lord. But here, she's doing this to Boaz because she sees he's in a much greater position than her, and yet he's been so kind, he's been so gracious, and he's been so considerate of her. So she falls on her face, she bows to the ground, and she asks him a question, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's essentially saying, hey, I'm a nobody. I came from Moab. I'm not even one of your own people. And look at how nice you've treated me. I don't deserve this. Why would, you, why would you look on me with such consideration and do such a special favor for me? Now, there are some who read this portion and think, well, Boaz is treating her this way because he's already decided he's in love with her. And that's not the case. Boaz is not in love with her at this point. He's not doing it because he's attracted to her. Women in those days dressed very, very modestly. 
And there would be nothing unusual about her in her physical appearance that would have led to that kind of conclusion. He's just a good and godly man. And because he's heard the story of how he, he uh, how Ruth has uh, been such a blessing to Naomi, um, he wants to be a blessing back to her. And so he answers her question, I've been told what you've done. He's heard the whole story of what's happened between Naomi and Ruth. How you left your parents and your native land and came to an unknown people, you know, a place that she's never been before. And then what Boaz does, again, because his heart is toward the Lord and he's constantly thinking about the Lord, apparently, he sees that the Lord has a role in this situation and he wants her to know it and understand it. She's a Moabitess. He doesn't, he doesn't know that she has any awareness of the Lord. And so in a sense, what he's doing here is, yes, he's pronouncing a blessing on her, but he's also informing her about the one true God and the kind of God that he is. And so he gives her what we would call a blessing, and then he adds to that what we would call a double blessing. The first blessing is this, the Lord repay you for what you've done for Naomi. Meaning the Lord sees what you've done. He takes note of what you've done. Nothing has escaped his attention. What you did was very, very good. It was very righteous. And the Lord is pleased by what's good and righteous when people do the good and righteous thing. And I believe that the Lord will repay you for being such a good person toward Naomi. And so I am pronouncing on the Lord's behalf the Lord's blessing upon your life because I know what kind of God he is. Now the double blessing is, he adds another blessing on top and he says, the Lord give you a full reward for what you've done. Not just that the Lord repay you for the blessing you've been to Naomi, but the Lord fully reward you above and beyond what you have done for Naomi. And this is exactly the kind of God that we actually know and serve. The Lord will repay you on the day of judgment as your life is evaluated by the Lord for all the service that you have ever given to the Lord for his name, for his kingdom, for his purposes, and for his people. The Lord will reward you. But here he pronounces above and beyond what you deserve on that day Above and beyond what you deserve, may the Lord reward you. In other words, he's saying, may the Lord overflow your life with blessing. And then he references or describes God as the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, this is an image that is repeated throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And it's an image that we're not meant to take literally, but we are meant to understand its meaning. It describes God as having wings. Now, the question is, does God literally have wings? Does anyone want to answer that question? The answer is no, God does not literally have wings. Now, we know some of the cherubim that surround the throne of God in heaven do have wings, but that's not God himself. God does not have wings. So why in the world would the scriptures describe God as having wings? Because God is greater than our understanding, and yet God knows that it's hard for us to understand who he is and what he's like. So he 
compares himself at times to things that we are familiar with so that we can understand him better. So what is God being compared to when we're, we're learning that God is portrayed as if he had wings? What is he being compared to? Who has wings in this world? Okay, let's start with that. That's simple. Birds have wings. God is comparing himself to a bird. What kind of bird? A mother bird. Because mother birds, when it's time for them to give birth to their baby birds, they make nests and then they, they lay eggs. And when those, those eggs are laid and then eventually the little chicks, the little baby birds are hatched, Whenever it rains or any other danger comes near, the mother bird will spread its wings and cover its babies so that any rain or any danger has to get through the mother before it can get to the babies. It's a way of saying this is how the Lord relates to his people. He protects us. He covers us. He Make sure that we're safe and secure, just like Boaz was making sure Ruth was safe and secure that day. It's a wonderful description of who the Lord is in relationship to us. Let me give you several passages. I'm just going to give you the addresses. We don't have time uh, to go and look at these. Psalm. Each one of these is a passage from the Psalms about the Lord having wings. Psalm 17, 8. Psalm 36, 7. Psalm 57, verse 1. Psalm 61, verse 4. Psalm 63, verse 7. And Psalm 91, verse 4. You notice there from the list that there are many places where the Lord later uses this imagery in the special worship songs that he gave to his people. All right, so Boaz has just blessed her, and Ruth responds, and she calls Boaz, my Lord. This doesn't mean she's seen Boaz on the same level as the Lord, but it is recognizing that she sees Boaz as a great person now in her life, and she is humbly uh, making acknowledgement of his greatness and the difference in their social situation, their social standing. She says, I have found favor in your eyes, meaning she's just acknowledging, you've done a great favor for me. You've treated me better than you treat other people even, and most certainly better than I deserve. You have comforted me. In in this, Ruth is essentially saying how his words have affected her heart. His words have put her in a place in her heart of safety, security, and confidence in that situation. And it's deeply affected her heart in what he's done for her. And she says, you have spoken kindly to your servant. Remember, Boaz is, is, is the owner. He's in charge. He didn't have to speak with kindness to her. He could have spoken to her harshly, or he could have spoken in an uncaring way to her, or he could have ignored her altogether. But he took note of her and he treated her with great kindness. And she identifies herself now as his servant, but she goes on to say, even though I'm not your servant. So which is it? Is she is Ruth his servant or is she not his servant? Well, literally and technically, 
She was not his servant because she was not one of the workers that had been hired by him. But she's saying, no, I see myself as your servant because this is your land, this is your field, this is your grain, and yet you have graciously provided it for me. Now, we've arrived at noon, and Boaz, uh, along with his workers, sits down for the normal midday break and midday lunch. We would call it lunchtime. And they're sitting there near the field, and as they're eating, Ruth sits down, but she doesn't sit down next to Boaz, even though he's been so nice to her. She sits down near the reapers, meaning you have, you have in the situation, you have Boaz, and then next to him would be probably the foreman, and then next to the foreman would be all of the other reapers, and then beyond that would be the young women, and she is sitting near the reapers, probably among the other young women. And Boaz notices her need because what? She wouldn't have brought a lunch bucket or lunch pail with her. She wouldn't have brought any food with her because she didn't have any food. That's why she was out gleaning. And so he notices her need and he makes provision and he passes some food to her. The food they're eating is roasted grain, which would be a normal thing. It's, it's not quite bread. But they take the grains that they're harvesting and roast them in a pan over the fire. And now they're edible directly. And uh, he passes a pile of roasted grain to her. And he also invites her to dip some of the bread. There's also some bread that's being served. And so he invites her to dip some of the bread. And most likely this was flat bread. But he invites her to dip it in the wine. And it's not wine in the sense of if you went to the store and bought a bottle of wine today, this was more like a vinegar sauce that was commonly used at the dinner table for all the families of Israel, where you would take this kind of hard flat bread and dip it in this vinegar sauce. It would give some extra taste to the bread and it would soften the bread and make it easier to to, uh, chew and to digest. And so he He invites her both to partake of the bread and partake of the dipping sauce that's available there. Now, how much did Ruth eat that day? She ate until she was satisfied. We would say she ate until she was full. She ate until she didn't want to eat anything more. Remember, this is a woman that has just been through a a time of famine. She probably was hungry. She probably ate a pretty good amount that day. But whatever she ate, Boaz had not just provided that amount for her, but he provided more than she had the capacity to eat. He was extra generous in how much grain he had passed to her at the lunch meal that day. So she had what we would call leftovers. The roasted grain is going to keep. It's not going to spoil. And so what does she do? She's, I don't know if she's got a pocket. She's got a pouch. She takes the leftovers and she doesn't leave it there saying, oh no, you know what? Uh, I've had enough. I I don't want to take any more. She takes it. Why does she take it with her? She's thinking of Naomi. Naomi's back home. Naomi hasn't had anything to eat. And so she is planning to bring it home to Naomi that evening. And we're going to see at the end of the chapter that's exactly what she does for Naomi. So she eats until she's full, which shows Boaz's generosity. And she finishes her lunch and she returns to work that afternoon. Now, she's gleaned a lot that morning. And she could 
She's had a full meal now at lunch. She could easily have excused herself and said, I've got some leftovers. I want to take it back to Naomi. I know she's hungry. Let me get back home. And she could have skipped that afternoon's work, which by the way, there's morning work in the field and there's afternoon work. Which do you think is more challenging and more difficult, harder? Afternoon work. Why? Because the sun is hotter in the afternoon than it is in the morning. It's more challenging to work outside in a field in the afternoon. But she continues to work all afternoon until when? Until sundown, until evening time. She's worked a full 12-hour day. Now, before she leaves, Boaz gives special instructions to the workers, the reapers. He tells them, allow her to glean among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. In other words, don't, you know, if a normal gleaner were to enter the field, remember, the workers would guard the grain in the field from the gleaners and say, get out of the field. You can go around the edge of the field and gather those little grains that follow, but you can't come into this field. He tells the workers, do not rebuke her for gathering right in the midst of the field. And also, he goes even above and beyond this, and once again, we see the depth of the strong character of Boaz, the great generosity of Boaz. He says, um, also, don't just allow her to glean from the bundles in the field. I want you workers to, as you make each bundle, pull out a few stalks and leave it on the side so that when she comes along, she can gather even more grain than she would be able to gather otherwise. This is uh, super generous on Boaz's part. And again, he says, do not rebuke her. So what we see here is Boaz is blessing her, not only with his words, which he had done earlier. The Lord bless you. The Lord reward you. The Lord repay you. He blessed her with his words. Now he's blessing her in what way? With his actions. So let's connect this principle to a passage in the New Testament. I'll let you read it in your own time. 1 John chapter 3. We studied this in an earlier year's Bible B. 1 John chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. Which essentially, I'm just going to reword it and say, the Lord is saying, Don't just love people with your words, but love them with your actions. Show them that you love them with what you say to them, but go beyond that and show them that you love them with how you treat them. And that's exactly what Boaz is doing here. So she continued to glean until the evening. She worked all day until sundown. And at the end of the day, she took away a certain amount of the barley grain that she had gleaned. How much barley grain did she take with her back to Bethlehem that night to take to Naomi? An ephah. Now, everybody here knows exactly how much an ephah is, right? How much was an ephah? Was it this much grain that would fit into this bottle that I'm holding up? Was it this much? Was it as much as what's in that blue thermos back there? Here's how much an ephah of grain weighed after a day's gleaning. 29 pounds of grain. Now, how many have ever lifted something as heavy as 30 pounds? Like a 30-pound dumbbell or a sack of something. It's not light. It's not easy. Now, where was she? She was in the field outside of Bethlehem. Where was she going? Back to the house. Back to where Naomi was. Back to town. Back to Bethlehem. She's walking. She's not putting it in the back of her SUV and driving back to Bethlehem. She's carrying 
29 pounds of grain. It's a little harder to carry 29 pounds of grain than it is a 29 pound dumbbell because the dumbbell has a handle. Grain has no handle. It's not easy. What does she do? She might have, she might have put it on her shoulder. She might have put it on her head. She might have put both of her arms underneath it and carried it in front of her. We don't know exactly how she carried it, but what does this tell us about Ruth? This is a sturdy young woman. And she's not afraid of hard work. And it might have been in a basket. We just don't know. And not only is she sturdy, but she is considerate. She's carrying all this, not just for herself. She's carrying it back for Naomi's sake. How long would 29 pounds of grain last two women like Naomi and Ruth if she never gleans another day? That's probably a month's worth of food for them. A month's worth. This is a this was far more than the average gleaner would receive from gleaning the edges of a field. The workers who worked for Boaz, generally speaking, expected to take home with them each day one to two pounds of grain as part of their wages for the work that they had done. She takes back ten times what the average worker would expect to take home with them that night. And a little bit more on top of that. It just shows how exceptionally generous Boaz has been toward her. So our last section, and I'll do this one kind of quickly because we're already at the end of our time. This is verses 18 through 23. Ruth returns to Naomi. So she carries the barley all the way back to town. She gleaned it in a single day. And not only did she carry that back, she also carried something else back with her. What does she carry back with her besides the 29 pounds? The leftovers. She, and what does she give to Naomi? She gives her the leftovers because she doesn't even make her grind up the wheat and, and bake for her dinner that night. She has a meal ready prepared for Naomi when she gets home and then food for the next day and the next day and the next day after that and on end for the rest of their month. Uh, Naomi sees how much she brought back and while the passage doesn't tell us Naomi is most likely shocked at how much she brings back. She certainly wouldn't have been expecting this much. And so she asks her, where did you get all this? That's essentially what she asks her. Where were you gleaning? And blessed be the man, the, the, the field owner, that allowed you to take this much grain out of his field. She is shocked and amazed and blessed and encouraged by what she brings home that night. And it has an, infe- an effect, an impact on Naomi's heart. How much Ruth brought home that night impacts Naomi's heart. Now, this is important to recognize because where we left off with Naomi at the end of chapter 1, uh, just turn back to chapter 1 for just a moment and look at, uh, look at what Naomi said when she arrived back in Bethlehem and the, wim- the women of this town said, uh, Is this Naomi? And... Remember from our study last week, Naomi responds and says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant because my life isn't pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because that's what my life is now. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. What we saw is that Naomi had been struggling with a very bitter attitude toward the Lord in her heart. And now for the first time in years... 
She's experiencing a great and deep blessing. Actually, it's not that she's never been blessed in between. She's been blessed by the relationship with Ruth. And she's been blessed that the Lord brought her safely back to Bethlehem. But still, she doesn't see the Lord's blessing. But now that Ruth walks in the door with all of this food, she sees the hand of the Lord and she responds uh, in this way. May he be blessed of the Lord. Now, he goes on to say, whoever this man is, um, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She's talking about the Lord's kindness toward her. She knows some man has provided it, but she recognizes ultimately the Lord is the one that's provided this grain. The Lord is the one that has, has given them this food. The Lord has been kind to her, and now the bitterness of her heart is being transformed into faith and trust in the Lord once again. And um, she identifies... Uh, Ruth does in response to her question, Naomi's question. It, I, I worked in the field of Boaz today. And of course, Naomi recognizes the name of Boaz because he was a friend and an acquaintance of her husband. And he is a, a, uh, an extended family relative. And she refers to him as he is our kinsman. And she, she uses this interesting description that's just a hint of where the story is heading. He is one of our redeemers. Now, this has to do, and I'm going to explain this in much more detail when we get into chapter 3 and in chapter 4. So I'm going to save the longer description. But she is, Naomi here is referring to a special law in God's law. Just like there was a law for gleaning, there was another law that had to do with those women in Israel who had been widowed. And it was called the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer. And this is right at the heart of the book of Ruth, and it's why the, the Bible Bee has chosen the theme of redeemed, uh, of redemption, of, of a redeemer's work. Uh, what we're going to see is that Boaz is going to step into the role of being a kinsman redeemer. But I'm going to save the explanation of exactly that, what that means and which one of God's laws is highlighting that for our, I'll save that for our next study. Uh, Ruth tells Naomi at this point that she's been given this special provision by Boaz, and Naomi affirms the wisdom that Boaz showed for for Ruth's protection. She says, it's good because for you to hang out with the young women so that none of the young men would assault you. And then uh, we're just told at the very end of the chapter that Ruth's, Ruth continues, not just that one day, she's, she's worked and received enough to to supply their need for a whole month. So why not just kick back for the, the next 30 days and just relax at home and eat up all that grain and then go back a month from now? Because a month from now, the harvest is going to be over. And then they'll be right back where they started in a month. So she's going to go out and work every day until the harvest ends. And they're going to have not just enough for the month, they're going to have an, enough for a whole year, at least. And so she continues to work. And we're told she works all the way through the barley harvest, which lasted several days. And she worked all the way through the next harvest that followed it, which was the wheat harvest. And so she is going to be bringing home, not the bacon, she's going to be bringing home the grain. And they are going, both her and Naomi, are going to be provided for for a long period of time. And it shows once again just how exceptionally generous and gracious Boaz has been toward her. And she remained close each day to the young women in Boaz's field, which just tells us she followed his instructions. 
She acted in wisdom. And then Ruth continued to live uh, day by day with Naomi. All right, we'll end our study there today. I'll um, end the recording and then I'll try to uh, answer any questions I may have left for you.